You know, on the front end of the 1992 film Aladdin, the hero for who, whom the film is named, uh, finds himself outside of a mystical cave, the Cave of Wonders. And outside of this cave, uh, he is tasked with retrieving a lamp, a magic lamp. And as he stands outside of the cave, the cave speaks to him and he says, Who disturbs my slumber? He says, It is I, Aladdin. And the cave tells him to proceed and to touch nothing but the lamp. Aladdin and his faithful companion, Abu, who happens to be a monkey if you're unfamiliar with the movie, they walk down this long staircase through a big treasure room. And Abu is immediately drawn to the treasure. But Aladdin stops him. He says, don't touch anything. And so his faithful monkey companion, he doesn't touch anything. They find a magic carpet who joins their lamp search party and they continue on down through the cave until they emerge in a giant underground cavern. And in the center of the room is a tall pillar. And at the top of that pillar is a beam of light. It's shining on the lamp. It's surrounded by water and some stones that form a bridge. Aladdin turns to Abu before he readies to cross the bridge and says, wait here. The monkey complies with uh, monkey talk. Abu, you know, okay, I got it. Then as Aladdin goes towards the lamp, the the camera kind of cuts back to the monkey who's sitting there. And you can see as he looks, he's looking at something, right? It's a diamond. It's this big red ruby. And the diamond reflects with both of his eyes. You can see in his eyeballs, like that's what he's looking at. His mouth is kind of dropping down to the ground. He really wants it. Before you know it, His outstretched paws have hold of that ruby. All of a sudden, the whole world begins to shake. We hear the cave bellow. You have touched the forbidden treasure. And soon everything is turning to lava. The whole world is broken. And he says, never again will you see the light of day. See, Abu had known the purpose of the party's journey into the cave, the lamp. He also knew the word of his master. He knew his master's command not to touch anything. Yet the ruby called to him with a soft voice that only he could hear. Pick me up. Hold me. Your master will never know. And as he gazed At the ruby, that deep red exterior cultivated his passion until he could no longer be controlled, until he had to take hold of it. It resulted in the world around him breaking. His master's words were ignored as he took hold of what his heart truly wanted. His actions proved that he loved the treasure more than his master. His action proved that he loved himself most of all. You see, Whoever we obey reveals who we most love. Thus, we're going to see in our text this morning, we're going to see a man who knows the words of the master, a man whose life was supposed to be consecrated to the Lord. But what we'll find out is that he loves his own sensual desires and passions more than the master. We'll see that his actions prove that he loves himself most of all. And eventually his world will come crashing down around him. He will ultimately obey himself as the authority in his life. 
our obedience reveals who we love most. You see, ultimately, he'll do not what's right in the Lord's eyes. He won't act in obedience to God. No, he'll do what is right in his own eyes and act in obedience to himself. He will come first. I think the author in uh, these short four verses is concerned with showing us that Samson is a man that's a little bit immature and a little bit driven by his sensualities. That he's after his own satisfaction. That Samson is a man that sees what he wants and he does what he wants. That he does what is right in his own eyes. And that Samson is kind of an Israel in many. Because Israel was a lot like Samson. They've been seduced by the culture around them. And they've begun ignoring the command of God in favor of what's right in their own eyes. And this morning, I hope to show you that we're not so different from Samson, not so different from Israel, that we too are often driven by idolatrous desires and gaining our own satisfaction. We have our own metaphorical red rubies that we look at. And then as foolishly as monkeys, we grasp them. And then we watch sin's destruction set in. Yes, we too are a people that see what we want, do what we want, do what is right in our own eyes rather than in God's eyes. We convince ourselves that we're smarter than God, that we know what's best for our own lives. It's a lie. And I hope to encourage you this morning to see not what you want, but to see that which is true, to see clearly, to look not through cultural lenses, but to go ahead and put on gospel glasses. We're going to be in Judges chapter 14. And in these first four verses, we're going to look at them in three parts. We're going to take a look at love. We're going to take a look at marriage. And we're going to take a look behind the scenes. A look at love, a look at marriage, and a look behind the scenes. Before we read the text together, though, let's, uh, let's go before the Father in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that you would watch over us, that you would speak clearly to us, that you would make your word uh, living and alive. We know it's a living word, but we pray that you would make it alive to us, that you would excite us about how you've spoken to us uh, through your word. God, we thank you for the cross this morning, that you have made us right, and that because of that righteousness, we are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to holiness. So, God, as we hear your word, allow it to transform us. Help to make us holy as you are holy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let's read the first two verses together as we take a look at love, a look at love this morning. Verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughter of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Samson, who we have already pointed out, was a promised child to Manoah and his wife, who was barren. He's a miraculous child. And in verse uh, 25 of the previous chapter, we read, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. That's Samson. But in this chapter, we find out that it's not the Spirit that's stirring Samson any longer. Uh, As Keller puts it, he's stirred by a much more worldly impulse. He goes down to a place called Timnah, and he sees a girl. It's love at first sight. He loves her anyway. 
I think it's interesting to note here that he just sees her. We don't even know that he actually talks to her. Maybe he just like creeps on her from a distance and uh, decides that uh, he likes what he sees and that he wants to marry her. The story's not too different from what we're used to in our own culture. I think if it was told today, the details uh, might change a little bit, but the concept would be the same. It might read something like a, a Disney film, wherein the main character sees their true love for the first time. I mean, it happens to Aladdin. It happens to Ariel. It happens to Cinderella and to even Wally. Love at first sight. See it elsewhere too, right? In the popular Twilight series, Bella, when she sees that uh, wonderful-looking vampire, it's love at first sight. We see it with Leo DiCaprio's character in Titanic, right? As he gets on board, he, he sees Rose and love at first sight. We see it in the notebook, right? Young Noah sees Allie at a carnival and, man, he falls desperately in love. Love at first sight. I think movies and literature and music often make use of this, this common trope. And they make use of it because I don't think we can get enough of it. I think we enjoy these love stories. I think stories have a way of reflecting culture, and sometimes they shape culture. I think the stories that we most enjoy usually speak to a desire or a need that we have. Sometimes they create the desire or need within us. These love stories shape us. And from an early age, we learn to put on these cultural and worldly lenses. We learn that somewhere out there is our one true love our soulmate. We're made to believe that once we find them, there will be internal fireworks that never cease, a constant emotive flow of warm fuzzies, that life will become a bubbling brook of bliss. We learn to believe that without our true love, to amend the words of the Backstreet Boys, that uh, we'll be awake, but our worlds will be half asleep. Our hearts will be broken, and without that other person, all we'll ever be is incomplete. Taylor Swift illustrates this in her song for us, too. It's actually called Love Story, and it starts out, We were both young when I first saw you. And then the chorus, Romeo, take me somewhere we can be alone. I'll be waiting. All that's left to do is run. You be the prince, I'll be the princess. It's a love story. Baby, just say yes. Now, it's not that I don't enjoy Taylor Swift or Titanic or The Little Mermaid. But the type of love that they communicate is a far cry from what we discover in the Bible. You see, the biblical love looks a lot more like Beauty and the Beast. Not the whole being trapped in a house with a monster part, although sometimes marriage can be that way. That's just what I've heard. I don't know that from experience. Uh, But the part where where Belle trades her life for her father's life. You see, biblical love is not at all about our happily ever after. In fact, it's not about your happiness or you at all. Biblical love is about the other. It's a love that is steadfast and unwavering, a love that depends not on circumstance or performance, but upon grace and covenant It is a love that can only be understood in light of the gospel. And it is a love that is lived out in obedience to the gospel. 
Biblical love, in fact, looks a lot like Jesus, who is love. Who didn't have any reason to step out of heaven and die for us, but did so. Who has no reason to love us, but does so. This is profound. And it's our paradigm, our roadmap for how we are to love others. Especially for how we're to love our spouses. You see, biblical love calls us to take off our worldly spectacles and to put on the gospel glasses so that we learn to love our neighbor as ourselves and not for ourselves. To love our spouses as ourselves and not for ourselves. The point I'm trying to make here is that we are a lot like Samson. We often think our relationships are all about us. We find it easy to love at first sight. And this this soulmate storyline sounds good and it sells a lot of books and a a lot of records and, and a lot of movies. But it's divorced from reality. And I think our confusion about what love actually looks like is often the culprit for the discord in our relationships. Love at first sight is it's often what we are taught we want. It's usually what we want to see. It's right in our own eyes. But it's often short-sighted and inferior to biblical love. You see, Samson has been infiltrated by his culture. And now he's approaching his life from a cultural standpoint, a cultural position. Let me ask you, do you have a biblical view of love? Or is it more influenced by culture? Who are your relationships about? Friends, we we must learn not to see what we want, what is right in our own eyes, but to see what is true. Not love at first sight, but love that looks like Jesus. So we get into, look at verse 3, and we'll have a look at marriage. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is right in my eyes. Remember, this is Samson's parents uh, who had the miracle child. They had this interaction with an angel that told them Samson is going to be this great and mighty conqueror. He is going to throw off, begin to throw off the the oppressor. He's going to save Israel from the Philistines. Now, with that in mind, imagine being his parents and he comes home and he tells them he wants to marry a Philistine. He wants to get married to the enemy. Instead of fighting the enemy, he wants to settle down and buy a house and build a white picket fence with them. Now, his parents obviously are not thrilled about this. And they ask him, isn't there a, a sweet uh, Jewish girl that he might want to marry? Now, it's important to note here that their objection is not at all racial, but that it's spiritual. It's about marrying someone that's outside of God's covenant. Because such a marriage would have been disobedience to God's word. Deuteronomy 7, 3, we read, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Now it's true that 
only marriages expressly prohibited are, are marriages uh, that are with the Canaanite women. But the reason assigned for this prohibition is equally applicable to the marriages to a marriage with the daughters of the Philistines. Further, Samson ignores uh, the prohibition in Exodus 34, which tells Israel not to marry people that don't know the Lord. Because such a binding partnership on a national or a familial level will cause Israel to join their spouses as they prostitute themselves to other gods. The point is, is if they marry people that don't know the Lord, they'll fail to be distinct. They'll fail to be the light of the world. The prohibition is to protect them from walking into the darkness. Samson, however, will not hear this counsel. And he demands of his father, get her for me, because he thinks that she is misright. He sees what he wants. His senses drive him. And he sees what's right in his own eyes. And what he sees as right and good is actually wrong and evil. It's against the word of the Lord. See, the wisdom of God's command to Israel still holds, still holds true for us, and it's It's given to us by Paul again in in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, quick caveat here before I continue. Uh, Paul also insists that if a Christian is already married to a non-Christian, that they should not seek divorce, but should seek to represent Christ well in that marriage. That they should be actively seeking to build a good marriage and to convert their spouse. Ideally, though, as Paul's uh, prohibition lays out and as we're told in the Old Testament, a believer would not find themselves yoked together with someone that does not believe. I think the main reason why is that the unbeliever would ultimately weaken the believer's faith. It makes sense in a lot of practical ways. If two people disagree about what the gospel is and about who God is, there's no way to prevent faith from being pushed to the margins of their lives, to the margins of their relationships. If you're with somebody that doesn't know Jesus, you're going to be with somebody who doesn't understand the very reason for everything you do. You're going to be with someone that has an unbiblical understanding of marriage. An understanding that's solely informed by the culture. And typically, uh, the world's picture of marriage is, is an ugly one. I think this is captured well by New York Times columnist Tara Parker Pope. In an article she titles, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. And this is what she writes. The notion that the best marriages are those that bring sacri- I'm sorry, satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouse were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for partnerships. And they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help them attain their goals. The article demonstrates one of the ways in which culture misunderstands the meaning of marriage. So when we look through cultural lenses, we understand marriage to be all about ourselves and our own happiness. 
I think in kind of an ironic way, this places a huge burden on our spouses and makes them the one that's responsible for our happiness. Ultimately, people make really crummy gods. And so when our spouse fails to make us happy and live up to our expectation, it makes us think that we still haven't found our elusive soulmate. When our marriages don't look like the movies or sound like a love story, we often blame our spouse and in America, we get divorced. Duke University ethics professor Stanley Horowitz famously pointed out how destructive this paradigm can be. This is what he says. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole or happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry. And if we look closely enough, we'll find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is means we are not the same person after we have entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Love this. His point is that marriage changes us the moment, moment we enter into it. So we're profoundly changed from that moment when we say, I do. His point is that we have to learn to love, not culturally, but biblically. And this gospel love is only learned and experienced when we love the unlovely. For this is what Christ has done for us. You see, when you are not emotionally drawn to your spouse, when you fall out of like with them, and that head over heels phase is over. If you prescribe to those cultural lenses, they're going to conclude that you've made a mistake. They're not your soulmate. And that you're entitled to change, entitled to happiness. However, if we replace these lenses with gospel lenses, you know that your feelings are not always trustworthy. And that the essence of marriage is that it's a covenant a commitment, a promise of future love. Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. So what do you do when the feelings aren't there? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, or eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, helpful. See, as you decide to love, feeling will follow your actions. You'll find that when you love the unlovely, including your spouse, when you find them unlovely, when you love the unlovely in a sustained way, they will eventually become lovely to you. This is the essence of marriage played out in our relationships. Covenant, the promise of future love. It causes us to care selflessly for the other, even when we don't feel like it. Even when we lack that spark or fire. See, the result of biblical love is not a boring relationship, but a relationship that's marked with passion. With a relent- it's a passion that's relentless and unwavering as the ocean's waves. There will be times of high tide and of low tide, but the waves will always be crashing. They'll be crashing onto the stony surfaces of our hearts. 
and carrying our shallow selfishness and sin to the great depths of the sea. Daily making us better lovers. Daily making us to consider the other more significant than ourselves. And daily making us more like King Jesus. The flame of love at first sight quickly burns out. But the light of gospel love binds us together and burns eternally bright. Keller continues, marriage is not sentimental. Marriage is glorious, but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats and exhausting victories. No marriage I know more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. See, a biblical marriage is not founded on feelings or on sexual attraction or on compatibility, but upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's marriage's great purpose, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. Biblical marriages are to be a witness to who Jesus is. They're to make us distinct from the world. So for those of you that are married, let me ask you, is your marriage distinct? Does it represent Jesus well? Is it about you or is it about your spouse? Married people, I want to I want to challenge you to do something special for your spouse this week. I want you to make it a point to pray for them every day, maybe just for a few minutes, but pray for them every day this week. And then also, in addition to that, think of just one special thing that you can do for your spouse this week. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you a second to think about it right now, all right? Think about something you can do for your spouse this week. Ready, go. All right, I hope that you've got it. Now, you know, I try to do some of these things before I ask you to do them in my own life the week before. So I'm usually like a guinea pig for myself, I guess. I try to do some of these things. And uh, this week, one of the things I did for Chelsea, uh, she asked me to go to the store after we had already been to the store and already gotten all these different things. And so she, she had me run down to the IGA and, and get an onion. Then I came home with the onion, and uh, I, I got to admit, I only did a halfway job because she asked me to chop the onion, and I didn't chop the onion, all right? So whatever you deem to do, go the whole way. Chop the whole onion, right? Don't, don't do it halfway. Really serve your spouse this week. Maybe find a way to do something romantic, something loving, but make them special this week. Singles. I think this week you can pray for your future spouse. That you can think about the meaning of marriage. And that you can determine to love somebody this week. Maybe a friend or, or a family member that maybe you're at odds with. Try and find somebody that has been a little unlovely to you and care for them. Find a way to serve them. Those of you that uh, have lost a spouse to death, I think uh, this week you can take time to meditate on the Lord's great blessing in your life. To think about the joy that marriage was for you. Perhaps share some of what you learned in your marriage with somebody else. Maybe you even know somebody in our community that's going through loss, that's going through a hard time in their marriage. Make it your joy to comfort them, to speak with them. As Christians, we are to be distinct in all of life because of our devotion to Jesus. So too were the Israelites to be distinct in their lives 
They were to be a witness to the presence and the authority of their God, the one true God, in the midst of an idolatrous society. Samson's desire to marry a Philistine was a symptom of Israel's sickness. Samson and the nation are so caught up in sin that they no longer even feel the oppression. They have exchanged the truth of God for the lies of the world. Israel is ignorant of their enslavement. Notice that there's not even a cry for deliverance in this cycle. You know, we've been used to the cycle that they sin, they're oppressed, they cry out, a deliverer rises up and saves them, and then they start the cycle over again. This time, there's not even a cry, there's just sin. Israel is not resisting their enslavement, but accepting the fact that the Philistines rule over them. They desire, like Samson, to marry the enemy. The people of Israel are virtually unconscious of their predicament. Because its nature is that of cultural accommodation. The Israelites do not groan and resist their captors. Because they've completely adopted and adapted to the values and the mores and the idols of the Philistines. God's people seem to be at peace with the oppressor. But as Michael Wilcox says, there is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church, God's people, and the world. For where there is no conflict... It's because the world has taken over. Where scripture and contemporary culture collide, there is often conflict. How can there not be? Those that do not know Jesus are stuck blindly worshiping the lies and the idols of the world. And as a result, this is what patterns their thinking. We should then expect that there would be conflict. As followers of Christ, we think and act and do everything differently than the world. We do everything unto the glory of God. Instead of what just feels good, instead of what is right in our own eyes, we seek to do that which is right in God's eyes. And if there is no conflict, it's because we have given something up. It's because we've surrendered. I think Keller points out three ways that the church has attempted to avoid conflict with the world in the past and even in our own time and ended up surrendering to it. In the first half of the 20th century, mainline Protestants made a very bold move to be relevant to modern people who could not believe in the supernatural. Rudolf Boltmann, a major theologian, said, No one who uses modern technology can believe in the ancient world of spirits and of miracles. It was thought that modern people would eventually lose all belief in the supernatural world. And so many churches began a project of de-supernaturalizing the Christian message. So the Bible was no longer seen as the infallible revelation of God. It was no longer authoritative, no longer inspired. It's just a flawed group of ancient stories that uh, were fun to reflect upon. The very ideas of conversion and of new birth were dropped now to be a Christian meant to live a good life, to look for justice. This took away of the conflict between Christianity and those who couldn't believe in miracles or a divinely revealed Bible or a physical resurrection. But of course, it meant that scientific rationalism became the true ruler and that true Christianity was absent. I mean, we saw this inside of the Southern Baptist Convention, didn't we? You remember the Southern Baptist conservative resurgence? 
to reclaim the authority of Scripture. It's why we had to go back in 2000 and uh, rework the Baptist faith and message so that uh, people would no longer abuse it and use it and try to find loopholes in it to accommodate the culture around us. Secondly, he points out that uh, more liberal churches, just uh, in general, for the sake of ease and talking about it, attempted to appeal to modern culture by embracing cultural idols of personal choice and freedom, absolute tolerance and the rejection of truth claims, the acceptance of and, and um, elevation of personal responsibility. I mean, these types of churches, they accept the modern sex ethics. They don't do church discipline. They don't preach Christ as the only way to salvation. Their ministry is typically, their ministry is supportive and therapeutic in nature. And no one is ever warned of the dangers of God's judgment. If churches preach judgment, accountability, and moral virtue like Jesus did, there would be conflict in these churches. Lastly, he points out the more conservative approach to endorsing cultural idols. This approach makes idols out of the past, tradition, one's own race, and cultural. While liberal culture is relativistic, conservative culture is moralistic and makes an idol out of goodness and respectability. It values good citizenry above all else and idealizes the good old days when things weren't so bad and the world wasn't so evil. It tends to have a superior view of its own culture, and if churches preach in these places about racism or the need for justice for the poor and challenged people to embrace the socially and morally unrespectable, the unlovely like Jesus did, then there would be conflict in these places. You see, cultural assimilation of ourselves and of our churches is so very attractive because we're still subject to sin. We still want to be part of the in-crowd. We want to be one of the cool kids. The problem is Jesus is not so soft a figure. If he's not your king, then the world is. And he tells us that in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. We can't love the world and love Jesus. James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Of God. And John also, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Christian, there is no middle ground. If Jesus is your king, the world cannot be. Friends, don't forget that we are at war. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We must wage war against the world, against the king of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We wage the good warfare, friends, by prayer, by proclaiming the gospel, by displaying God's glory, by being the church. I want to challenge you to wage war this week. Pray for our church and other churches that they might look less like culture and more like Christ. Also pray for a friend or an acquaintance that you know that doesn't know Jesus. And then 
be the answer to both of these prayers. Make the church look more like Jesus by looking more like Jesus yourself and practicing spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, praying for others, being in community, and share the gospel with your friend. Friends, do not forget the war. Israel had so forgotten the war and capitulated to the culture around them that they were no longer distinguishable from it. We see in this narrative the heart of Israel to do what is right in their own eyes. To do what they want, what they deem good. To make themselves the authority rather than God. To do what is right in their own eyes despite what God has said. Israel is whoring after other gods. The people of God are faithless and broken, but God remains faithful. This is the dynamic that we've seen throughout Judges, and we see it now as the church. We are a broken people with a faithful God. God's faithfulness is revealed to us in the last verse here. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Despite the fact that Samson is sensually driven, despite the fact that he is a little bit immature, and despite the fact that he is more heel than hero, God will use him to show the nations his glory. Thankfully, God uses sinners like Samson, sinners like us, to work out his good purposes. Thankfully, God has not left us to blindly trust what is right in our own eyes. Thankfully, He's revealed himself to us in his word, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who took our sin and gave us his perfection, who died and rose so that we might die and rise so that we might know God, what it is to be truly satisfied, that is to worship God by enjoying him forever. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us lost and serving ourselves, but shows us himself so that we can see clearly the shape of love, the shape of love of marriage, and the shape of the gospel.